0: today's sermon is based on 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 1 through 7 and it really is drawing upon last week's sermon where I talked about the Christian sexual ethic. If you're here hearing this one for the first time and you didn't hear the last one and you in the course of today's sermon think you should have probably said this or that, it's possible that I said that last week and it's also possible that I just make a mistake and, and don't say what you think I should this week. But today, we're going to be talking about um, marital sex. And then the following sex sermon, uh, the following Sunday, will be on singleness. And I wanted to also touch on purity culture as well. So we'll, we'll do that. 1 Corinthians 7. i just venture a guess that if we took a poll on our sex lives that promised complete com- com- uh, confidentiality, the majority of us would say overall it's not what we wish it would be. I mean, that's conjecture entirely on my part. It's not even based on conversations with you. It's really just based on pastoring these number of years. Um, We know that on the whole, according to the data that's out there, Christians do tend to have better sex lives and happier marriages than people who are not religious. But when you look at the data, uh, the bar you have to clear is— it's a really low bar. It's not really saying much to say that we're better than the non-religious. I'm sure you've heard the phrase before, sex is a gift from God, but for many it's a gift that you're not allowed to enjoy. Maybe it feels like a gift that's wrapped up and put on the shelf. Uh, it could be because you attribute uh, that to issues your spouse has with sex, or maybe it's because of your own hurtful past sexual broken past. Uh, I mean, we have to, whenever we talk about sex nowadays, you really have to just address the issue that sexual abuse, sexual abuse of any kind, has profound effects on the way that we experience sex. Um, And that's not just for women, too. I mean, there's far more men who have been at some point in their life sexually abused than most people assume. It's, It's an issue for both sexes. And a lot of times, you know, we have that trauma in our past, but we don't get help with that trauma. We don't, you know, take the necessary steps to get help. Um, Or maybe they try to get help, and maybe you try to kind of deal with sexual problems by going to the Christian bookstore and getting a book on, a Christian book on marriage and sex, only to find out that, honestly, there's a lot of bad stuff that teaching out there on sex from a Christian perspective that ends up making things maybe not better, but actually worse. You know, all of that to set up the sermon Um, This is not, I'm not a sex therapist This isn't a sex therapist talk But I'll try my best to discuss How I think today's passage Can contribute to how We can have deeper sexual intimacy In marriage And that is a topic that matters to God Our our sexual lives Like having healthy sexual lives um, Truly matters to God and to Jesus And so to get there Let's talk a, a little bit of background On 1 Corinthians 7 the the church the corinthians had written to paul asking him for advice on several matters which were causing strife in the church last week in chapter six we saw one of those matters apparently some people in the church were sleeping with prostitutes they were engaging with the the temple prostitution most likely up at uh, the temple of aphrodite they were opting to cast off all sexual restraints because, like, who cares what you do with your body? All that, ca- all that matters is your immaterial spirit, or so they thought. Well, on the other end of the spectrum, there were still others in the church in chapter 7 who, who were champion- championing celibacy. They were saying that Christians should either be celibate if they're single— or that they should abstain from sexual relations in marriage and they said that this is the way you can achieve like new depths of personal holiness and new spiritual maturity that all of us the real pathway is celibacy but paul um you know he, he was not a somebody who was against celibacy uh, he himself was unmarried whether he uh, his wife We think he uh, had a wife who either died or had left him when he became a Christian. He believed, though, that the celibate state was good, and celibacy was even preferable in certain situations. Unlike our world, he didn't consider sex to be um, essential to to having a flourishing human life. He didn't consider celibacy to be in any way inferior or deficient to the sexual life. But at the same time, he knew that not everybody had the gift of celibacy. And in a sex-filled city like Corinth, where temptations were plenty, he says, I got some advice for you who are married. Uh, And his advice on marriage sex, I think, is really helpful for us to hear. Before we, though, hear it and before we read, let's pray once again on this topic. Our Father, uh, we prayed about this last week, and again, we ask for your help. Um, You know how this subject brings up all kinds of things inside of us. For some of us, we have battle scars. For some of us, we have open wounds. Uh, You know the ways that we have been used sexually or damaged sexually. You know all of the despair, perhaps, that is associated with this topic. Some of us despair of ever being loved. Um, Some of us despair because we're uh, not loved. We're in a loveless marriage. And many of us just have some feelings of guilt and shame somehow related to sex and, and our own sexuality. And some of us, Lord, are, are judgmental and self-righteous when it comes to this topic. Uh, wherever we are at, we pray again that you would please come to our aid and please show us Jesus, the Savior and Healer, and lead us to experience Jesus' liberating, you know, life-giving spirit in this area of our life. We need you. Speak to us, please, and give us hope. Amen. Verse 1. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, and here he quotes one of their slogans, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. You can see that's the celibacy camp. Um, But, he says, because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife And each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. You know, a husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. And in the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, a Satan may tempt you because of your lack of, of self-control. Re- just recognize that that verse 5 is being spoken in a context where some people are advocating for perpetual celibacy, and Paul saying uh, that's unwise. Verse 6, I, I say this is a concession, not as a command. I-, I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift and another that. You know last week I quipped in the sermon that too often the message in church has been sex is Ugly and dirty. So be sure to save it for someone you really love And and that's been the message and that is so crazy because like of all the religions of the world You'd have It's it's probably safe to say that christianity is the most body positive Religion of the world's the great world's religions, you know, it's It teaches that matter and physical bodies uh, were created by God, that God declared them all good, that Jesus himself, who was himself God, uh, he took a body, which he still has in glorified form, and someday, as we said earlier, he's going to give us perfect resurrected bodies of our own. uh, Christianity teaches, and Judaism too, that God created sexuality and gave a woman a man uh, for each other in the beginning and that, that that beginning oneness, the two shall become one flesh, is his intended design. And, you know, and the Bible contains you know, tons of great love poetry. It celebrates sexual passion and pleasure. I mean, the Song of Solomon is the, is the book of the Bible that's most often cited as an example that the Bible is not prudish about sex. And what's interesting I don't know if you recognize this about the Song of Solomon, is that it's primarily the woman in that song and not the man who has the dominant voice in, in the poem. Um, she is the, the primary one who is seeking and pursuing and initiating. And the poetry that she utters in the poem is, is quite erotic. I and mean, it certainly counteracts our cultural narrative, which maintains that you know, men are the ones who have the sex drive and women, well, you know, maybe, maybe not. Um, not so not so in that book. Just all of that to say that if anyone thinks that sex is bad or dirty, the whole Bible contradicts them. Um, they, they may have gotten that in church, but they didn't get that from the Bible. And so how then does this passage contribute to, to, to the conversation? Well, you have to remember uh, that Paul is writing to a Grego-Roman culture that held that women were basically the possessions of their husbands, legally speaking. Um, they, they were almost owned by their husbands. And, you know, the, you didn't marry for romance back then. You married for economic stability. You married for social stability. And you married, married to raise up progeny, you know. You raised up—men took wives in Corinth in order to have legal heirs. And the funny thing is, you you didn't marry the person that you expected to have this great, erotic, pleasurable life together with. You know, as far as a man was concerned, you took care of that on the side, you know. If you wanted sexual pleasure, that was expected to be found outside the marriage with multiple mistresses or with boys or with male prostitutes. I mean, as we talked about last week, men of status were just expected to have multiple sexual partners. And it's important to say that to recognize how revolutionary the claim that Paul makes here in verse 4. It's into that world that he says in the same way, quote, in the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. Today we say, duh, like, uh, of course, But nothing like that had ever been said before. I was reading a scholar on this topic um, a couple of weeks ago, and he writes this, quote, "...I am unaware of any Greco-Roman writer who says that women have just as much authority over their husbands' bodies as their husbands have over their own bodies." Nobody had conceived of that. Nobody had said that. That is a very egalitarian principle, and it's a, it's a blow to the double standard that men of sexual, uh, social status could just demand sexual gratification from whomever they wanted to below them on the social pyramid. Quite the contrary. You know, Paul is teaching that each partner, male and female, has a right to mutual sexual relations, and not only, that, not only that, but he is redefining their understanding of marriage by saying that the place where you go for sexual gratification, the place where erotic desires are supposed to be satisfied is with your marital partner. Yeah, so number one, mutual satisfying sexual relationships uh, ought to be part of uh, a husband's wife's life together. Um, he would say, number two, that, you know, one spouse wasn't allowed to deny sex for another person for a period uh, of, like, say, perpetual abstinence. No, that that they were to, to be together. And then number three, each partner in marriage is to be most concerned not simply with getting sexual pleasure, but with giving it to the other party. And again, we say, well, of course, of course, but... Nothing like that had ever been said before in human history. We'll talk a minute about sex and marriage. You know, sex is uh, perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. You know, sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. With that in mind, Four things here: sex should be pleasurable. I mean, it, it was designed by God to feel good, and for, to feel good for both party partners. Uh, sex shouldn't normally be one a one sided encounter, you know, only for one person's gratification. It should be personal, and we talked about this last week too. It, it, it's 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 for intimacy. It's for oneness. It's to know the other person and know them exclusively. And then the final one, sex, it should put the other person first, always considering the needs of each other. Um, You know, that's not the way that our culture thinks about sex today. I I likened our cultural moment to very, it's very much along the lines of sex as, as an appetite. You know, if I'm hungry, I eat. If I have an itch, I scratch. If I want sex, you know, just Get sex because what sex is primarily in our culture designed to do is to give you a chemical hit, to give you dopamine. Uh, and way too often we carry those assumptions into our married life and think that like our spouse is supposed to be our dopamine dispensary. And and absolutely not. You no, know, for sex to feel truly intimate, it, it needs to be saying to the other person, like I want you. Not just I want the sex. I I see you. I choose you. I want to experience something with you and you only. I I want to know you. I I want to know you better. And what I think uh, is the case is sex with that kind of connection, it's life-giving. I mean, it's wonderful. And sex without that kind of connection, it just ends up feeling, you know, pretty empty, you know. Sex without connection can make the other person feel used. Uh, it, it really just does. I think it does so much come back to the, the connection of our, our, our oneness. You, you have to make it about connection. I mean, there are at least three major types of connection that are present in a marriage. Spiritual connection, right? Are we really spiritually connected at, at the, that level? Um, emotional connection, are we emotionally connected, and physical connection. And when all three of those connections are present, they work in tandem with the other, and so the, the bond of your oneness, it's strengthened. Like, when physical and spiritual and emotional all work together, they, they feed one another, and, you know, the, the more you laugh and feel close, the more you desire each other and make love. The more you make love, the more connected you feel, which does end up making your commitment feel a lot stronger. You know, in healthy marriages, sex helps a couple feel closer. It's a tangible expression of the love, commitment, and tenderness that is already there in healthy marriages. But when there isn't that foundation of feeling valued and known by your partner, you know, you can't expect sex on its own to create it. It's so important. Like when you don't feel, when somebody doesn't feel heard or known or cared for or like they matter by their partner, sex is not, is not going to fix that at all. In fact, it'll probably make it worse. Indeed, sex divorce from intimacy, it just widens the chasm between two people, you know. I find, you know, that is so true. You, you, you can't be intimate if you don't feel like you're valued by the other person. And, and so whenever spiritual and emotional connection is missing, you know, the physical connection can end up actually causing more harm than good, and we have to address that. Uh, I was, I, I, I've drawn some of the sermon from Tim and Kathy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, because they have an entire chapter in the book on sex, and Uh, It was interesting how they were reflecting on, you know, they had they were married for 40 50 years And it must have been Tim who wrote this He said when I was doing research for this chapter I found some old talks that Kathy and I did together and he writes I had forgotten some of the struggles we had in our early days And, And some of the notes reminded me that in those early years we started to dread having sex it, it was so hard, and having him remember that kind of helped me remember you know, sex and and our early marriage and how how for Aaron and I, it was hard at the beginning and of course of course it sh- 's hard because you 're just trying to l- discover what it means to love another person you 're you're, you're just trying to learn how to connect with another person, and then every single one of us comes into a marriage with. I mean, just these heavy, heavy bags, don't we? All kinds of bag baggage, and so many scars, and so many unhealthy things in our past, and so we're bringing that into the bedroom together. You know, there may be guilt, fear, or anger over past relationships. There may be uh, a growing mistrust or disrespect, or or unresolved differences in your present relationship. Like sex is such a great and sensitive thing that you. You will not be able to sweep these problems under the rug. No, unless your marital relationship is in a good condition, sex doesn't work. So be very careful to look beneath the surface. A lack of sexual compatibility, this is, I think, Keller again, might not really be a lack of lovemaking skill at all. It may be just a sign of deeper problems in the relationship itself. It, I mean, those of you who've been married for a long time, is that true? yeah. That's really true. And so what do, we, what do we do about it? If you have problems, relational problems in your marriage, you've you got to get help. I mean, the status quo, usually leaving the status quo in place is not a long-term solution. It's not a solution at all. And I, I mean, I've had so many countless conversations with couples who... Uh, I mean, they need counseling, and, but counseling is expensive, and maybe they've tried counseling before, and uh, it's not always immediately helpful, and they're like, well, why should I do it? I don't, I don't want to spend the money, and it. it hasn't worked in the past, and I'm like, you can't quit yet. I mean, think about it this way. If we have something seriously wrong with our bodies, do we just go to a doctor one time, and, and that gets fixed? No. I mean, it usually, it requires multiple doctor visits. It may actually require multiple doctors. It it requires changing our diet, tweaking things, changing our medication. Like, we, we do lots of different lifestyle changes until we get better. And I just think that people, in my experience, they quit. They quit entering into the counseling route, like, far, far too easily. Well, here are You know, a couple of suggested ways of thinking about it differently. Instead of saying she has emotional needs and he has sexual needs, because, yeah, people say that, it's better to say both spouses have sexual and emotional needs, even if they feel one uh, to a greater degree. Uh, Instead of saying um, a husband has a need for physical release through sexual intimacy, say, you know, God made sex to be intimate physically and emotionally for both partners. Both of you have a need for intimacy through sex, like, even if you feel it differently. And then finally, instead of saying, well, you need to give give sex more in order for me to feel connected to you, say, you know, sex can help a couple feel closer, but it cannot sustain intimacy on its own. And that's so true, too. Like, there. There are things that sex can't fix in a marriage. Sex can't fix selfishness. It can't fix laziness. It can't fix abuse. It can't cure porn. It can't cure lust. It can't cover up the absence of a healthy connection. Like The, the only thing that will do that, that I know of, is Jesus. <laughs> you know, the healing love of Jesus Christ. You know, I want to say one more word before I conclude. You know, some men have used verse 7 as a demand for sex whenever they want it. So I'm going to pull the verse up where he says, Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of, of self-control. That, that verse has been corrupted into you know, saying basically a wife is obligated to give her husband sex whenever he wants it. Or or it gets twisted into a well, women should give, have frequent sex to keep their husbands from watching porn. I mean, I know that sounds crazy, but those are things that we, we say to one another. It becomes a form of coercion, and that is not what Paul is teaching. I mean, he doesn't deny that there may be some times in our marital relationship where Like you you need to be apart sexually. Um, you need to abstain from sex for a while But he's definitely not saying that whenever you want it you should be given it that is That's just pure selfishness And if you've heard me say anything in the sermon, hopefully you've heard me say that sex It shouldn't be an exercise in control or selfishness It's it's a giving of my whole self to you and it's about us being Connected and building together. In conclusion, do you recognize this photo? No. This is a, a later in life photo of Sigmund Freud. You know, Freud was the Austrian neurologist and founder of psychoanalysis. And you know, Freud's writings have had such a big effect on our world today. I mean, Freud was the first thinker who characterized pretty much the entire human development process in terms of sexual gratification. I mean, the whole. The whole process is sexual, according to Freud, all the way, you know, from breastfeeding to potty training to, to puberty to you know, how you feel about your mother. I mean, he, he said the reason people are willing to participate in society is so that they, you know, hope that they will have their sexual desires gratified. He says that all of us are sexually repressed people. I mean, he basically reduces... The human experience to our sexual desires and experiences. Uh, and he said, he planted, rather, he planted the seed that if you're not sexually gratified, you, you can't be happy. Um, and You have to pursue sexual gratification to be truly human. I think that's a major reason why, as faith and trust in God continues to decrease in Western society, you know, the place where people increasingly look is is romantic love, is, is sexual love. Like, instead of us finding purpose and meaning from God and having God give us our true life's purpose and direction, you know, people are entering into relationships looking to a spouse or looking for their date, to, to looking to their partner to pro- provide that. And that is just way too much weight to put on another person. Like, to expect that they'll complete you and and bring you satisfaction and fulfillment and make everything go well in your life, that's just an awful lot to put on sex. And in fact, God never intended it that way. Um, To be the most fully human is not to be uh, maybe the most sexually gratified. To be most fully human is just simply to be loved and, and known by God. It really is. You know, Christ's love is the great foundation of building our lives, and it's the great foundation for building a, a, a happy life and a healthy marriage. And we have to remember, too, in marriage that marriage is not just sex. It's, it's this whole compendium of love. It's, it's romantic passion, yes, but it's also friendship, yes, and it's acts of duty and service. It's all of these things and more. It's all of that along the spectrum. And what I can tell you what I can tell you is that if you have a deep, fulfilling relationship with Jesus Christ, you can find the power in him to meet the, the crazy demands of marriage. Because it does feel like, you know, marriage has this seemingly impossible level of demands to meet. But, you know, you can in Christ. Deeply experiencing Christ's love is really what waters the ground of a marriage, and it's what enables all forms of human love to grow and something that freud did not uh know or understand he he i think was um if i'm not mistaken his father was a a pastor and he hated his father but we have a good good father who truly loves us and wants to see us uh thrive in this area of our lives amen we can taste his love and communion and so we're gonna uh, prepare for that now